Bibles, I'm not exactly sure where to tell you to turn. I'm in the Gospel of Luke, but as you'll see, I'll be all over the place. I'm going to start in Genesis 2, 24 and 25. This is one of those very difficult sermons, difficult topics. I'm going to talk about divorce and remarriage, or as Brian told me this morning, 50 ways to leave your lover. I don't know about that. I've never heard of the song before. No, I have. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, uh, a very difficult topic, not even a pleasant one. And in some ways, a topic that can bring pain to individuals who have suffered a relationship difficulty, challenge, or break. We pray for your comfort for those individuals who might feel discomfort by this topic. And we ask, Father, that your inspired and errant word would uh, challenge us, encourage us, and that we would, as individuals as a church, be very pro-marriage, even as we talk about divorce and remarriage. Father, guide us through a maze of difficult passages that we might see what you have for us this morning. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen. There's no doubt that this is a hard topic. This is a hard series of texts. If we're honest, a number of sincere Godly, scholarly individuals can look at the same text and come to slightly divergent conclusions. And so today I offer you my understanding of the text. As we talk about divorce and remarriage, we're going to start with a series of pictures. I'll ask for them in a moment. I offer these pictures as the light part of a heavy sermon. I'm not offering these pictures as go and do likewise. Now, as somebody who has counseled individuals who have had marital breakups or who have suffered through a spouse that has been unfaithful, I can suspect that some of these pictures you might say to yourself, that is a great idea. I wish I had thought of it. That's not why I'm offering them. This is the light part of a heavy sermon. The first is of a gal. Uh, she has discovered that uh, her husband has cheated and, well, she's rearranged his car. It probably needs a little bit of improvement. Nice job with the uh, sledgehammer. The next one I'm going to read to you in case you can't read it yourself. Michael. GPS tracker, $250. Nikon camera with zoom lens, $1,600. Catching my lying husband and buying the billboard with our investment account, priceless. Jennifer, that was a costly mistake on his part. Here's a fire sale. All of his stuff, cheap. I think it's all free. The next one is a very thoughtful wife. She wanted to return all of his tools. He apparently had left them behind. Ooh, 
And finally, self-explanatory, my cheating ex-boyfriend is watching from the couch instead. Go, pack, go. Again, these introductory pictures were often or offered lightheartedly, not as something to imitate or emulate. But this is a difficult topic. We're going to talk about divorce and remarriage. And while I really do not favor topical teaching, there are some topics that might better be handled topically, this being one of them. So although we're going through the Gospel of Luke and we'll have one passage out of Luke, we're going to look at a number of passages on what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. But before we get there, I think it'd be wise to take a look at one passage on marriage. It's from Genesis chapter 2, 24 and 25. Very familiar text. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. And from this text, I think we can rightly derive very quickly four principles, all starting with the letter P, that God intends for our present marriage or a future marriage. The first P is priority. A man shall leave, the Hebrew word yazab, that's the priority, the priority of a husband-wife relationship. Under our relationship with the Lord, God's desire is for the most important relationship on earth to be between a husband and a wife. And so when husbands and wives make one another the priority, they safeguard their marriage. The priority over the children and over the grandchildren and over uh, vocation and recreation. The priority is the husband-wife relationship. The second thing we see is permanency. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, that's the word permanent, cleave to his wife. It's the Hebrew word dabak. It means the permanency of the husband-wife relationship. This is the same word used in Job chapter 19, verse 20, that describes a relationship of our skin to our bones. Under normal conditions, we kind of would like our skin to stick around to our bones until death do us part. That's the idea that God intends in marriage. He wants the priority and the permanency. I believe that those couples that use the D word, divorce, threaten the D word, divorce, will probably suffer the D word, divorce. God's desire is permanency in marriage. The third word is partnering. You have priority, permanency, partnering. The man and the woman are to become one flesh. It's not his schedule and her schedule. It's our schedule. It's not his calendar and her calendar. It's our calendar. It's not his bank account and her bank account. It's our bank account. It's going through life together. It's the partnering of a life. That's what God intends to safeguard our marriages. And finally, physicality. The man and the woman were both naked 
and they were not ashamed. The first being to have a sexual thought was God, and he created sexual intimacy as good between a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. And so God gives us, right in the second chapter of the Bible, four Ps to safeguard our marriage, priority, permanency, partnering, and physicality. And so even today, as we talk about divorce and remarriage, we want to remember that God's desire, God's heart, is that we value and protect the marriage relationship that we are in or for a single that somebody may be in in the future. Now let's look at some other passages about the destroying of marriage. The first is Malachi 2, the 16th verse. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Those who do not invest in the four Ps might end up with a divorce. And the text says God hates divorce. God hates divorce because divorce causes violence. And God loves us too much to want that violence in our lives. Now that violence may not be physical. It may be, but it may not. But it may be violence spiritually. It may be violence mentally. I think this way. When a young couple comes into my office and they want to get married, and it's such a joyous occasion, it always bothers me to ask them about the divorces in their family. But I need to do that because I need to know that on the wedding day, certain people may not be able to sit with one another. Certain people may not be able to be in the same photograph with one another. Certain people may need to be separated from tables, and we need to safeguard this young couple's wedding day because of divorces that have proceeded. That's the kind of violence that goes from generation to generation. A little while later, we'll talk about what this young couple will do when holidays come. Whose house will they go to on Thanksgiving? Whose house will they go to on Christmas? Or if a couple comes in and they're in the midst of divorce, we need to talk about alimony and we talk, need to talk about support and child support and who gets what and the finances and the property is divided. Who gets the pets? We need to talk about how to handle kids in two separate homes being shipped back and forth. And all of this is very painful. It's painful to them and it's painful to me. And that's what Jesus is talking about in Malachi when he says that divorce causes violence. It causes generations of pain and nobody desires that. And God loves us too much to desire that in our lives. And yet some divorces are the result of one spouse doing things outside of the marriage that bring violence to both and bring violence to others. We'll see this in Matthew 5, verse 32. Matthew 5, 32 reads as follows. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, Porneas makes her commit adultery from the Moikia family 
And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery also from the Moikia family. There's two separate words used in the text. The first, pornea, describes a wide variety of sexually deviant behavior where the Moikia family talks about infidelity or adultery in a more narrow sense. And the text tells us that if one of the spouses steps outside the marriage and is sexually deviant, that pornea word, the result can be moikia, adultery and fidelity, which results in the breaking of the oneness and sometimes the breaking of the marital bond. Now we might ask why. Well, from just a human point of view, we understand it, but from a spiritual view, why is the oneness broken? Because oneness has been recreated somewhere else. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It makes this statement. A man who is joined together with a prostitute becomes one with her. Now this is a one-time act for money, and yet oneness is created in the eyes of God. And God designs oneness to be between a husband and a wife And when someone steps outside the marriage, they create oneness with someone else, thereby damaging or shattering the initial oneness, thereby damaging or shattering the marriage, thereby allowing God to give a concession, a permissible concession to the inner the innocent spouse, that that spouse can either invest in the marriage and work at the marriage and seek reconciliation, or that innocent spouse can actually leave the marriage because the oneness was shattered. The oneness was shattered by the one who stepped outside the marriage. We see the exact same thing in Matthew 19, verse 9, a parallel passage. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that pornea word, and marries another commits adultery, that moikia word. Notice that I use the word permissive. God permissively offers a concession. He doesn't offer a command. And so if somebody has suffered because a spouse has stepped outside the marriage, that individual has a choice. That individual can decide to stay in the marriage, to fight for the marriage, to pray for the marriage, to work at the marriage, to seek counseling within the marriage, or that individual, the innocent spouse, can decide that the oneness was so shattered that the marriage cannot be rebuilt. And it's that individual's decision. Herein becomes a problem for the evangelical world. Sometimes we've got the idea that it is biblical always to stay in the marriage. But biblical is what the Bible says. That's what biblical means. Biblical is not what we want to do or we want someone else to do. It's what the Bible says, and actually the Bible gives a permissive condition to allow an innocent spouse to leave the marriage because the oneness is shattered. And so we need to be very careful when someone is suffering because a spouse has stepped outside the marriage not to lay extra guilt on the innocent spouse and say, you know, it's always more godly 
to stay in the marriage. That may be true and it may not be true. The Bible actually gives a permissive condition to step outside the marriage because the oneness has been broken by the non-innocent spouse and it actually becomes legalistic on our part. It becomes pharisaic on our part to add things to what Scripture actually declares. The next passage I want to look at is Luke chapter 16. It's actually where we are in Luke. Luke chapter 16, verse 18. And it makes this statement. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now this is teaching that we haven't seen in the other passages. What this text is saying is this. If you're going to marry someone and that person has been previously divorced, it becomes important to find out the reason for the divorce. Was the divorce pre-salvation? We're going to see that is an important distinction. Was the divorce for a biblically permissible reason, adultery or as we'll see, desertion in a few moments? Or was the divorce post-conversion for a non-biblical reason and the person you're marrying being the one that caused the divorce? If you marry that last individual, the Bible says you commit adultery. Now, it's not a scarlet letter. It doesn't mean that you're an adulterer for the rest of your life. It does mean that you have committed adultery in the eyes of God, and it's something that needs to be confessed. That's what Luke chapter 16, verse 18, adds to this entire discussion. One more very long passage and then a short one. The long passage is in 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at verses 10 to 15. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11 to start. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. What I see in these two verses is that there may be a time when a couple needs a time out and they say, you know what? We're going to separate for the express purpose of working on the marriage. Now, Paul says most of the time that's not a great idea, but if you're going to do it, he says, work at the marriage, don't seek a divorce. And so here in the text, we actually have, again, some permissible concession by God for some kind of separation working on the marriage so that there's reconciliation as the final goal. Let me continue on in verses 12 and 13. To the rest I say, I not the Lord. Now that's a very odd statement. It's only one in the Bible that we have like it. I say this, I not the Lord. Now some may say, well, all right, we don't need to listen to this because this is Paul, not God. That's not what the text is saying. What Paul is saying is, when Jesus was walking on the earth, he never addressed this particular topic. 
So now we have later revelation. God is giving me a topic Jesus didn't address while he was physically on earth. That's all Paul is saying. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So what the text is talking about is if you find yourself in a mixed marriage. There are several ways you could be in a mixed marriage. You could be in a mixed marriage as a believer who ignored 2 Corinthians 6:14 to 7:1 that says do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, but you forged forward and you married an unbeliever and now you're in that marriage. You can also be in a mixed marriage if you came to Christ after your wedding vows. Either way, what the text says is stay in the marriage, work at the marriage, pray for the marriage, invest in the marriage. In fact, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, specifically addresses wives who are married to unbelieving husbands and you're to win him over by the way you live a Christ-centered life before him. So, the text is really saying, whatever marriage you and I are in, first marriage, 15th marriage, whatever marriage we're in, make it the one that lasts. Invest in it. Commit to it. Be committed to that marriage. That's what God's text is saying to us. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. What does that mean? How can someone be made holy because they're married to a believer? This does not mean saved. This means consecrated. It means set apart. It means that you will be in the presence of the gospel being taught verbally and lived out. You have an advantage as an unbeliever being married to a believer because you're going to hear and see the gospel on a regular basis. That's what Paul is saying. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates... Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So the last part is saying, if you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves, and leave does not mean stomping out and coming back three hours later. That's immaturity, but not leaving. Leaving means that you leave and don't come back. If the unbeliever leaves, the believer is freed. She or he is not enslaved because God has allowed you to live in peace. I take that to mean that you are then free to remarry because the unbeliever has broken the oneness and has left the marriage and is not returning. With our remaining time, I'd like to just summarize this for you. You'll actually see in your sermon notes my summary. I'm not really going to say anything that's not in your sermon notes, so here you're going to hear me read what I already printed out for you. One, marriage is designed by God to be a beautiful institution between a husband and wife as long as both of them live. We see that in Genesis 2. We saw it in verses 24 and 25. It's in Song of Songs. 
chapters 1 to 8. It's really the point of Malachi chapter 2. God's intent is for us to invest in our marriages. Two, God's intent is for our marriage to be a lifetime. That when we say I do, we are committed to the marriage. That we don't toy with the D word. We don't challenge somebody with a D word. We don't threaten somebody with a D word. We are in this marriage and committed to it. However, because of humanity's hardness of heart, Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 19, God permissively allows divorce in certain situations. I think sexual immorality, that deviant pornea word, Matthew 5 and 19, desertion, 1 Corinthians 7, and in my opinion, desertion is expressed through violence. I can't prove that, but I understand 1 Corinthians 7 to teach that as well. Three, regardless of one's past marital history, whatever marriage you and I are presently in, that's the one God wants us to invest in, to work at. You remember what Paul says. He said, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward for what lies ahead. Paul is not dismissing sin in his past. He's confessed it. He's repented of it. But now he's going to work at his present and future. So whatever our past may be, if we need to confess and repent of it, by all means we do that. But Paul says, work at the marriage that we are presently in, invest in it, pray for it, and see that it has great success as far as it depends on us. Four, if one is married to an unbeliever, you stay in the marriage. You invest in the marriage and you pray that salvation would come to your spouse, 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3. Five, God allows biblically sanctioned remarriage in at least the following circumstances. One spouse has passed away. Romans 7, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Timothy 5. B, one's former spouse repentant, unrepentantly engaged in sexual immorality, pornea, Matthew 5, 19. They've broken the oneness and you've decided that you can no longer go on in that marriage. And as the innocent spouse, God has given you a permissive concession to leave the marriage and to be free. C, one's unbelieving former spouse divert, deserted the marriage, 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. Now at this point, I think a fair question would be this. 1 Corinthians seven fifteen says one unbelieving spouse leaves. What happens if one's believing spouse leaves? Well, 1 Corinthians 7 does not address that. But I believe other passages do. In a church discipline passage in Matthew 18, the 17th verse, so we're talking about discipline, we read by Jesus that if your believing individual acts like an unbeliever, treat him like an unbeliever. And so I think I can take the discipline passage of Matthew 18 and read it back into 1 Corinthians 7 
And so I believe that whether a believer or an unbeliever leaves, again, we're not talking about stomping out and coming back. It's immaturity. We're talking about leaving and never coming back. Then we are then free, free to, I believe, remarry. And finally, I want to read to us a passage out of 2 Corinthians 5.17, which I apply to marriage. Many scholars do, some do not. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I take that passage to mean this. If a person suffered a divorce prior to coming to Christ and then they came to Christ, there was no possibility of reconciling the old marriage, I believe that the in Christ person can now be remarried as a believer because the text says the old has passed, behold, all things have become new. Do all interpret the passage that way? No. But I would say from my reading, the majority of scholars do. Are the majority always right? No. So it's a iffy understanding of the text. What I've given you in that little handout is Jeff's understanding of divorce and remarriage. I suspect that if my coworkers had constructed a list themselves, it would be similar they might use different language. They might even have a different point or two. I was very encouraged this week when uh, Phil Riken, he's the president at Wheaton, former pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, he had created, I guess, a 17-point thing very much like it, and Dan McDonald emailed it to me on Thursday. And uh, I was really encouraged because I think the world of Phil Riken and his and my list are absolutely identical. It gave me a little more courage this morning. So if you don't like what I said, Phil Riken is at Wheaton College. <laughs> Go ahead and email him because he would love to hear from you tomorrow. The bottom line is this. God wants us to invest in marriage. If you're married, invest in the marriage that you are in. If you're single and you're looking to be married, invest in that marriage when it comes as God would desire because God wants a husband and wife to live a life together, growing in him, growing one another, and to live for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, uh, it's always difficult to talk about such a sobering and in many ways painful topic. And we want to be so pro-marriage. And yet we also know we live in a sinful world in which oneness is broken. And so Father, help us to balance Biblical truth and grace and charity and love help us to balance these things well. Help us as a church to be about grace and holiness and purity 
supporting marriages and supporting singles, supporting your people and those who someday may be your people. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.